Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Michael, get to the things that matter and the information we need so that we can better discern our times. A couple different things we're going to talk about with that today. The rise of auditors. Those are online folks, YouTube, especially TikTok, other mediums, who go around and film the police. Now, ostensibly, they do it to prevent things like police brutality. They're uh, agitating for reform, but some of them are starting to go too far. We need to talk about this issue, what it means, and what it actually gets to the heart of is what are the police supposed to be doing in the first place? What are their responsibilities? What are your responsibilities as a citizen in the country and how those two things need to balance out? Talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Dr. Bob Hutton's on the program today. He's a professor of Appalachian history and other things in Glenville State University in the beautiful state of West Virginia. We're going to talk about higher ed in Appalachia specifically, but there's some universal principles there. What it does do, what it doesn't do, how does it actually affect things? Going to talk about some colleges that are closing, that there is rough times on the horizon for even the big name colleges and schools and universities. Also going to talk about things like how education and higher ed can lead to things like diversity and economic development. Bob Hutton on the program today is our guest. Very excited to talk to him. Uh, But first, let's talk about caregiving. This is something that is really important. And like a lot of important things that lots of people do, it doesn't get talked about because a lot of people just do it. The news came out that uh, Hollywood actress Sandra Bullock, very famous, Sandra Bullock's longtime partner, Brian Randall, had died of ALS. Lou Gehrig's, we used to call it. Uh, He's had it for the last three years. They've been together since 2015. Now, first of all, our thoughts and prayers to the family. This is a brutal horrific illness that robs everything from the person stricken with it and then eventually kills you. People with ALS have to have total caregiving at the end of their lives. They aren't able to do anything. Now, most people aren't rich and famous like Sandra Bullock is, but by all accounts, she was a caregiver, and that's why we haven't seen a whole lot of her the last few years. God bless her for that. The truth is, though, in America... As many as 53 million people are caring for somebody other than themselves that is not a child or under the age 18. One in five of the U.S. population is a caregiver in some respect. And this is something that just doesn't get talked about enough. People just do it. They have family members. They have friends. They have loved ones that need medical caregiving or maybe emotional caregiving. We're having an explosion in understanding of how mental health issues affect folks. Some of those folks need companions and caregivers and people to at least check on them, if not full-time care in a lot of cases. This is an issue 
that goes to the very heart of what we are as a society and a country. People want to talk about culture wars. Well, does your culture mean taking care of each other? That's more important to culture than probably whatever boycott of whatever brand picked people off on the internet is, don't you think? Caregiving is expensive. People that are full-time caregivers can't work in other areas. People that need full-time care obviously can't work themselves in a lot of ways. This gets into disability policy. This gets into benefit policy. This gets into a whole lot of things like economics and personal relationships and value and worth and human medical stuff. We know the debates we've had about healthcare in this country. Our healthcare system needs to be far more nimble when it comes to things like home health and home health care and helping these folks out in the homes where they live. Caregiving is one of those things that doesn't get a lot of attention, but with one in five Americans actually doing it and an untold number of folks that need caregiving, we probably ought to spend more time on it than we do on some of the things we're yelling at each other about online. Caregiving shows us the best parts of our humanity while it also demonstrates the frailty of us being humans. We're all going to die at some point. Many of us will get sick at some point. And many of us are going to need somebody to take care of us at some point in our lives, if not long term, at the end of our lives. And these are issues that don't get enough attention. So while Sandra Bullock and her family and her partner's family mourn their loss, this needs to be a teachable moment. You need to take this headline and a celebrity who everybody recognizes and is very well-loved and respected, very talented. We've watched so many. We watch The Proposal all the time in our house. We love Sandra Bullock movies. This is an excellent teachable moment to sit down with your family, to sit down with your children. If you're older and an adult, sit down with your parents that you may need to be a caregiver to or anybody in your life, friend, family, partner, spouse, whatever, that you may need to take care of or that you may need to take care of you, sit down with them and use this as a teachable moment to start working on things like an end-of-life care plan. Start working on things like medical powers of attorney, spending months and months in the hospital. I promise you, I have very specific thoughts on very specific medical procedures, what they should and shouldn't be able to do to me if I'm incapacitated. I have people that are in charge of such things. You need to write this stuff down and get it on paper so that the people that love you can take care of you the way you desire. This stuff needs to be dealt with. Don't wait and think it's not going to happen to you. It will. None of us are getting out of this thing alive. And if we're lucky, we have people that love us and take care of us. Make it easy for them. Use this moment with Sandra Bullock being in the news and the passing of her partner and the way he battled this horrible illness as a teachable moment for your friends, family, and yourselves that we need to be prepared for what's coming for all of us, which is the end of life and the inability to take care of ourselves. We need to talk about policies on how we can better help home caregivers, which, by the way, would also be good medical policy because it frees up an overburdened medical system. We need to talk about how we can take care of ourselves as friends and neighbors. And this gets down to the core of maybe we are fighting over some things online that aren't that important if we can't take a break from them to discuss this, which is vitally important and that many of us will have to deal with. Teachable moments in the headlines, folks. It's a good way to turn down the noise. It can actually make your life a lot better. And in the hardest parts of life, which we will all go through at some point, it can make it a lot easier on your loved ones, 
and on yourself. We're going to link not only to this story, we're going to link to a couple of resources on the Substack page that if you don't know how to do things like palliative care plans, end-of-life care plans, how to get a, a medical power of attorney, we're going to have all those links on the Substack notes, hertel.substack.com. Make sure it's free to subscribe to. It doesn't cost you a dime. We'll have those resources for you. Things that make your life better. It's one of the things we try to do on this program. More Hertel right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Let's talk about police watching. You might have heard tell about these auditors. They're very popular YouTube channels and other social media, TikTok, things like this, where these folks video encounters and things that are going on with police officer and other law enforcement officials. Now, let's pause right here before we get into this. We're going to read from a Washington Post piece. I'm going to link to it, as we always do on the Substack notes. Make sure you're subscribed to the Substack. Heard tell show.substack.com. Listen, we live in a media video age. I've told my own children, if you are outside in public, just assume you're being videoed because every single person has a video camera in their hands now in the form of a smartphone. And the first thing everybody does when something starts going on is they pull it out and start videoing or taking pictures. So we need to just establish this is just part of life now. You can complain, you can whine, whatever. You got to adapt. Everything that goes on now is being videoed. That's for good and bad. And this kind of stories bring this out. Let's talk about these auditors real quick. This is part of a much larger Washington Post piece. You need to read the entire piece. I want to read this one excerpt, though. With varying degrees of antagonism and legal expertise, the online movement known as cop watching or First Amendment auditing has swelled in popularity in recent years, capturing the imaginations of millions of Americans who are examining their relationship with police after incidents like George Floyd's murder at the hands of police in Minneapolis in 2020. Pop watchers and auditors say they are waking up and over-police nation to its plight. They're forcing police and government agencies to train their workers to respect First Amendment rights and are willing to risk arrest in the process. A few are also cashing in. Experts say the most popular auditing channels can generate more than 150000 a month through ads and subscriptions on YouTube, Facebook, and TikTok. Individual auditors can earn tens of thousands of dollars a month. The reason we pulled, put a little pin there, we're going to come back to that in just a second. The reason we get pulled over and we get arrested is that we are trying to show people that it's not okay to just let them get away with it because it's going to get to affect the next person, Ruff said, who's one of these auditors. They think it's okay because they've been allowed to do it. But such encounters have also sparked a backlash. Again, I'm reading from the Washington Post here. Several states have passed laws or taken steps to limit opportunities to record police interactions, restrictions, 
have been affecting reporting by news organizations. Some law enforcement leaders accuse cop watchers of selectively editing videos, misinforming citizens, and spiraling vitriol. Poor police escalating tensions during police interactions with civilians and endangering officers and civilians. Last year, a Mesa judge ordered Ruff to stop filming Mesa police. In July, Gilbert police issued a memo describing Ruff as a potential threat to law enforcement. The department declined an interview request. Auditor videos have led to disciplinary action for hundreds of officers across the country, and a handful of police have lost their jobs. The interactions and resulting legal fights have found their way to a federal appeals court, which affirmed the rights of civilians to film police as a result of lawsuits bought by a Texas-based auditor. Sean Tindell, the commissioner of the Missouri Department of Public Safety, recently met with his staff to discuss several videos alleging police misconduct posted since last year by a Facebook watchdog group inspired and amplified by the auditor movement. 20 years ago, Tindall said, similar complaints from citizens might not have been taken seriously. Quote, I'm thankful for some of these cases because it allows us to light the do's and don'ts, Tindall said. At the same time, he worries the videos have poisoned police interactions with members of the public who, quote, got their law degree on Facebook. Viral online confrontations between auditors and police officers also making it difficult for agencies to attract recruits, Tyndall added. I think a lot of folks watch these videos and say, I don't want to put myself in that situation. There's a lot more to this piece. There's a lot of layers and nuances to it. Let's try to turn down the noise on this a little bit, though, because this gets to what we always talk about on this program. There's a lot of cross streams here. There's First Amendment's right. There's your rights against the police and law enforcement and the government. The government and law enforcement has certain rights to protect the public and to enforce the law. And all those things are colliding here. Here's a couple basic rules of thumb. You absolutely have a right to videotape the police when they're doing something. And I know I'm showing my age saying videotape. I realize it's on a cell phone. But if there's an interaction going on and there's something that doesn't look right, it probably ain't right. Video it. Save it. Look up your own rights. Don't take somebody's word for it on the internet or on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever. Look up what your own rights are. Yes, folks need a warrant to get into your phone and things like that. But you need to record things if it doesn't look right. But do so at a decently safe distance. Don't insert yourself into the situation. Do not be confrontational with the police for no good reason, just for the sake of being confrontational. What's happening with some of these auditors is they're purposely being confrontational because it drives up their views because this is now their business model. We need to discern between the folks doing this just for the business model and the sensationalism and are purposely trying to get interactions that go bad with police just for the sake of having them and the folks who are honestly trying to highlight police that go too far because both happen. Yes, police need to have accountability, and video evidence of what they do is usually the only way you get that accountability. But do not insert yourself, and you cannot do the right thing the wrong way. Don't commit a crime to prove that the police are doing something that's criminal. That just puts you in a bad spot, and it makes you a bad faith actor. If we're going to criticize the police for not upholding their duty to protect the public, and I like the old term for police, peace officer, Bring peace, not militarize. They're not out there to just kick butt and take names. They're not out there to be some paramilitary force. It's not us against them. The police are supposed to be the peacemakers. That also means the civilian folks and the folks that want to do these auditing also need to be peacemakers. The goal is to get better police. The goal is to have a better community. And if you're fostering the antagonism between the community and the police, then you're not doing that. 
you're making things worse. And the police are going to end up taking that out on not only you, but probably other people. And it makes their job harder for the good police if all you're doing is antagonizing them. There's a happy medium here, folks. These auditors can do important work, but they can also become part of the problem. And getting hundreds of thousands of dollars on YouTube is going to tilt them towards the bad side of that equation. So let's recap. You have a right to videotape stuff. You probably should videotape stuff. If it doesn't feel right or look right, videotape it. Do it from a safe distance. Do not insert yourself into the situation. Let the police do their job. Your goal is to have a better society, a more peaceful society, a more law-abiding society. We need to make police better. We need to hold the police accountable. But you don't have to make their jobs harder on top of it, nor do you have to overlook any malfeasance they may be having. This is just the world we live in now. Police need to get over it. They're going to be videotaped every time they step out of their cruisers or outside of the station house or whatever they're doing. They're going to be videoed. Deal with it. That's the world you live in now. That's why you're getting paid. You don't like it? Find another line of work. But at the same time, the public needs to understand they've got a job to do. And unless they step out of line, you need to respect them and let them do it. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk a little higher ed in the highs and lows of Appalachia, West Virginia specifically. We're going to talk to our good friend, Bob Hutton. He has a lot of letters after his name. So that's Dr. Bob to you, teaches things like Appalachian Studies, Glimble. I can't say university, man. I still say college. How long did it take you to adjust to that? Because it, it's always been Glimble State College all my life. You know what? It didn't take me long to adjust to it either because they did it just about four months after I got there. Oh, okay. So it wasn't really hard for me to adjust. In fact, I, I like to tell people that's why they got university status, because, you know, finally I showed up. Not oh, true, though. I, I see the prestige thing. I got deep ties there. Both my parents went there for their undergrad. My daughter goes there. Um, great school. It, it, you know, let's just start right there, because Glenville's a good example. It was actually the West Virginia Teacher College, if you go back in the history long enough. Small school, 1600-ish admission, something like that. Small school, but hasn't really had highs and lows. It's just kind of maintained and has done very well. As I understand it, there was a real low around 2006, but I've never gotten the full story on that. (laughs) West Virginia, for all its other upheavals and things, the college and university system has been pretty steady there. We've had some examples of it. Um, I went to college, West Virginia, which turned into Mountain State University, which turned into a debacle and got shut down. And they eventually moved West Virginia Tech into those facilities. We've had some bad spots. We have this Alderson Broaders situation going on now where they're decredited. And the flagship university, WVU, has got um, fun. They're not going to close down or anything, but they've definitely got some issues to deal with. What's the history of higher ed in West Virginia just generally? Because although there's been some of these, it's been kind of pretty consistently steady, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's been certain key moments. Uh, I mean, if you look at the history of Glenville, for instance, as a sort of as a 
what do you want kind of, kind of a synecdoche of, of, of higher ed in, in West Virginia in general. There's certain key decades, like for instance, when were we founded? 1872, right in the middle of reconstruction. I mean, what's what's driving that? Well, the fact that there's suddenly federal money for education um, and, and all of a sudden there's demand for teachers. And a lot of people got together in the community here in Gilmer County and said, we need a teacher's college because we need teachers. So they they petitioned the state for that and they, they got it. What's the, and then so, you know, there's sort of a steady march from that point on. The first few decades, the school had principals rather than presidents because the distinction between a high school and a normal school was, you know, really fuzzy. And then you have the depression. And then uh, there's the, because of the depression and because of the new deal in re reaction to it, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of money pouring into education. The the building that I'm in right now was built by the Works Progress Administration, WPA, and very important part of the New Deal. So, uh, and then I guess the next real hot point would have been the '60s when all the when the the baby boomers started going to college, and again you had a tremendous amount of federal money coming into coming into some sometimes otherwise very impoverished states, um, and a president that. Two presidents, actually, that were very interested in West Virginia, um, that being Kennedy and Johnson, right? And not to mention, it was the early salad days of a guy named uh, Senator Byrd, Robert Byrd, right? And um, he was always pretty good about getting that federal money pouring into West Virginia in one way or another. So, um, it you could uh, a lot of people think it's a combination of pluck and luck, but Quite frankly, it's it's a matter of demand size planning. Where where there's some sort of demand, you throw the money there, you try to get the money there. And some of the more successful moments have been when the federal government really wanted to prime the pump of education. We're not in one of those moments right now. Right. Bob Hutton joining us. That actually gets us to exactly why we're having some of the problems we're having now, not just in higher education, but secondary. Look, you talked about the 60s. That's when my mom and dad went to school because they got federal teaching grants because there was a massive teacher shortage. Yeah. Both of them very poor. My dad was first in his family to go to college. My mom was the first woman in her family to go to college. And they went to Glenville on those federal grants. And that's how they got education in my generation. And here I am because of that kind of decision making. That's also part of the problem, though, because that generation is all retired now. That massive core of the baby boom teachers, we really haven't recovered fully from that on one hand. Then you had COVID on top of that. Those two events coming within about a 10 to 15 year period of each other, that's part of the bedrock of what's going on now. Then you talk about the funding and you have a triangle of bad for education, higher, secondary, primary, whatever you want to call it. That's a bad combination for anybody to have to deal with. It is. And also in the, the next decade or so, we're going to have a real fall off in the number of students because in the alts, people uh, stopped having quite as many children, right? So uh, a lot of the politicians who don't like education anyway are going to use that as an excuse to to twist the wash rag and um, get take take even more funding out of what we're getting in than, than what we have already. So there's it's sort of a critical mass of a lot of different problems going on, like you say. One of those problems, look, there's no way to extricate funding from education. There's just no way to do it. We also know that funding alone does not fix or make education better. So this is kind of the paradox that everybody's got to deal with here. To me, 
education is like any other problem, though. If you have a higher education institution, whether it's the size of a Glumble or the size of a WVU or a Harvard or a community college or whatever, that always is going to go to the leadership of that school. Look, you and me are sitting here talking about it. everybody knows what the demographics look like. They know the trends. They know that we just taught a whole online set of kids that they can go to school online. That's going to have an after effect. They know these problems are coming. A lot of this really does come down to the leadership of the individual schools and how they manage that funding, not just the funding, right? Yeah, and then, of course, that's the problem we see going on up in Morgantown. Uh, there's, There's been... I, you know, I used to teach in Tennessee where when around the time I left, um, the General Assembly and the governor's office were being really hands on when it came to higher education, uh, usually not, you know, not to a great, not to a great result. Uh, and, but in, in West Virginia, uh, you, you notice Governor Justice and I think a lot of prior governors, um, they, they typically allow schools to do as they will. There was a certain amount of independence for your state school. And uh, that has not worked to um, uh, WBU's advantage under Gee, I don't think, especially not in the last year or so. Yeah, Bob Hutton joining us. Give us a little consp- uh, comparison here because we can get a little insular in West Virginia. I'll admit that. I think we can all kind of look in the mirror on that one. Sometimes we make things worse than they are. Sometimes we make things a lot better than they are. Use something like a Tennessee, a neighboring state, another state that has, you know, a lot of mountains. They got more metro areas, but culturally got some similarities. Just give me a comparison how West Virginia is or has been doing with higher ed compared to somewhere like a Tennessee, a neighboring state. I think West Virginia and Tennessee are pretty comparable when it comes to higher education. Um, For one thing, you have, correct me if I'm wrong, but WVU is both the state university and the land grant institution. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah, Tennessee does a similar thing, unlike a lot of states where you got a UVA versus Virginia Tech or an Auburn versus Alabama situation. Um, with both Tennessee and West Virginia, the state university is also the land-grant institution, and that leads to a kind of an interesting identity crisis within any university. Um, in Tennessee, they had this, uh, when I was, most of the time I was there, they had this uh, work it worked out so that there was the University of Tennessee system, which was about four or five campuses. And then separate from that, you had the Board of Regents schools, which was all the state regionals, plus all the community colleges under one particular board. And they kind of fixed that since then. Here in West Virginia, though, of course, each university, your Marshall, your Glenville, your, your WVU, all your state schools, they, they're pretty autonomous. And so you don't have this one system president. Uh, I think even WVU Tech has a separate president from WVU, correct? Yes. So, you know, it, it's it, there's a certain kind of autonomy that you see in West Virginia that's, I suppose, based on the Virginia model, but it's very different than what we experienced in Tennessee. Bob Hutton joining us. 
How much we look, we've all said it because it's just a buzzword now. You know, higher education improves lives, higher education improves the economy. You go to college, you better your life. What it, well, there's some nuance to that. What is the effect when you're just looking at Appalachian history, West Virginia a little more specifically? Has it really had the effect we think it has? Has it had more of an effect or less an effect? We, we say the buzzwords, but we also see, you know, the demographic bleed in the state. We also see the economic troubles. Is there a way that we're not perceiving it? Is it really helping or hurting or is it just kind of this neutral thing for those that make advantage of it? It's like everything else. It's what you make of it. I think it, uh, the, the students that I've talked to about this, I've had a handful of students just in the two years I've been here who come here for a semester and they'll say, you know, this really isn't for me. Um, and, and I'll say, well, you know, if that's how you feel, then then don't go to college if you're not feeling it, right? You got to, it's like your football coach used to tell you, you got to want it. Um, and I, I don't remember really running into that acquiescence uh, 10, 12 years ago teaching at other schools. And I think people are starting to realize that um, something that, I mean, it's been abundantly obvious for 40 years now, uh, a bachelor's degree is not a golden ticket. Um, now, if, for, for those who if it becomes a golden ticket, oftentimes that's going to be a plane ticket or a, or a U-Haul ticket, and they're going to leave the state. Um, so if you increase education's availability enough and enough, enough people partake in it, um, the if they don't find the opportunities right here at home, they're going to move to another state. And so I do think that um, one of our, one of the ironies of, of making uh, higher education so much more available and affordable in West Virginia, and I do think it's more affordable here than it is a lot of other states, is the fact that it has probably contributed to um, migration out of the states. Um, people with graduating with bachelor's degrees and finding opportunities in North Carolina that they or Virginia that they they weren't finding here, and that's a problem. Yeah, Bob Hutton joining us. Is there any way that the higher education system in West Virginia could be a part of the solution to that trend? Now, obviously, if you give people skill sets and they can't utilize them, they go elsewhere. We know that too. Are we utilizing our college towns? Are we utilizing the universities and the colleges that we do have? Is there a way, do you think, that we're not using what we already have to maybe try to retain those people in a better way, do you think? I think there's a pretty good example going on between places like Morgantown and Paramount where they'll they'll set up these very active sort of technological districts. Of course, this involves a lot of science, technology, STEM Type, uh, type learning that I know nothing about, but it seems to create jobs. Uh, and of course you're gonna see it, you end up seeing it up in Mon County more than you are in many other parts of the state. Um, Southern West Virginia, a little bit south of where you're from, um, they seem to be kind of very gradually getting away from fossil fuels and kind of address, uh, kind of embracing sort of a a tourism economy well tourism economies generally don't require a tremendous number of college graduates to run them it usually requires a lot of people who barely got out of high school to work service economy jobs and it's sort of the problem that western north carolina has right now um you gotta you you, you can't just expect the the university to improve the the lot of the state 
it creates the opportunity, but uh, it doesn't really create that many jobs other than the ones that are, of course, on the university. The county I live in, I mean, obviously the university is the by far the largest employer, except maybe for the natural gas company. And I think we're yeah. slightly, we employ more people than it. Yeah, I promise you on golly season, when you're on the golly river in September and it's up by about six feet, you don't want an academic guiding the raft. I, I assure you. <laughs> you want some guy who probably went to college for one year and he gives you the whole story about how, you know, summer teeth or whatever. And uh, you've probably heard that saying. And um, that, those are skills that are not generally learned in a college. Although sometimes, sometimes they are. I mean, I learned how to canoe at college. Um, yeah. But very few people are going to go to college for canoeing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. This is why I think as much as I hated it for my look, my dad was born in Montgomery. My my grandfather worked at Alloy for his whole career. I, I hated what it did to Montgomery. But this is why I think moving tech to Beckley was a very important thing for that region, because now you will get those science based kids and you will get some of that. And some, you know, it may only be a, a percentage of them, but it takes a few of them to kind of start hanging around in the area. I, I think that's an important thing, and I think watching it going forward, maybe I'm hoping a little too much here. I do think long-term, it'll be very gradual. You're not going to have like a Microsoft thing pop up or anything like that. But over the next 10, 15, 20 years, I do think that can make a very big difference in that community, especially when you look at kind of where it is. You got the New River Gorge stuff now. It's kind of the gateway, the next biggest large city. You could see where that moving a technical college and that that was a very well respected engineering school long before they moved it so i'm not just being a homer here yeah that kind of stuff i think it really does matter to a rural area that's really hurting in a lot of ways i mean look beckley has gotten big enough that it was pretty much screaming to have a college i mean there was already a bible college um but but to have a it's a school it's a it's a town the size of the city really uh sizable enough to support uh a good sized university. And I think it was, the, the move was probably good for Beckley in some ways. And, and look, here's the thing about Montgomery. Look where Montgomery is. It's halfway between Fayetteville and uh, Blue, and Blue or, I'm sorry, Charleston, correct? It's, it's not that far from Beckley either. Um, it, it's within a corridor that's going to, even if West Virginia might have a net loss of population in the next 10 years, that area of the state is going to have a net gain. Yeah. And Montgomery is not going to completely lose its its entire reason for its existence. It's not going to go back uh, you know, to a state of somewhere like two or three of the counties just north of where I live that you know don't have any colleges or anything like that. Yeah. Um they're they're in a good geographically, they're in a, a pretty good spot. And it's probably going to be a tourism-based economy. So in the in the short run, I feel really bad for them, but in the long run, I, I think they should probably you know realize that other they may have bunions, but other people don't have feet. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. 
sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. joining us yeah i i my true freshman year i went to college of west virginia which is the same buildings now that west virginia Tech, logan hall we were the first people living in logan hall the dormitory took the plastic off everything what's the i'll tell you some stories about it but i don't know the statutes of limitations in raleigh county so we'll skip that <laughs> when you're talking to young people um because glenville does get people from outside of west virginia there is culture shock I mean, let's be fair. Even West by West Virginia standards, you go to Glenville and just look up that hill and you're like, what? why did we put a college here? Um, the culture shock is one thing. What do they think once they've adapted and kind of settled in a little bit? What's that outside perception? Because you see it because you get these college students coming in. It's a little bit of a unique viewpoint. And then what do they think about West Virginia and Appalachia as they go along? I've had more African-American students in one semester here than I did in the entire 12 years I was at University of Tennessee. Wow. Now, I'm really? not sure. I'm not sure why that what that says about UT. But at, at Glenville, we have, like you say, a, a really diverse mix because we recruit so much um, out of state when it comes to athletics and also outside the United States. I've had students who've come to play golf here from Canada, Great Britain, uh, Paraguay, South Korea, you name it. Not just golf, but that's the one that's one of our, our, our more popular sports. And um, I'm sure for the students, it's it's an amazing culture shock. But um, a university, one of the, the key elements that a university needs is diversity and voices from beyond just the the uh, immediate area around where that university is. And that's that that work. That's a, just as true for Oxford University in England as it is for NYU, as it is for Glenville. 
And um, whatever culture shock that takes place, I think is is ultimately a net positive for the students, for the for the administration, and and I I can certainly attest it is for me as an educator. Um, I've I've really appreciated the uh, <laughs> the, the, the diversity we have here. Um, I just I mean I'm not saying UT didn't have it. It just never really filtered into my history classes there. Yeah, Bob Hutton. I think diversity and people kind of recoil that world in certain areas. Mm. But if you look at the history of West Virginia, you're an Appalachian history person. You know this. The two or three biggest migrations into West Virginian history were very diverse migration movements in a lot of ways. You had a lot of Eastern Europeans. You had folks coming out of the South that were um, African-American and others. It's always been a place where people who were looking for something better or had nowhere else to go, they would filter in. And those people are always going to be diverse because human struggle is a universal concept, right? Yeah. I don't see any reason why we can't do that again. We've done it before in the past. Folks just need to get over that diversity part because that's exactly who you need to be because that's who's going to want to come. And I, I don't understand the blowback against the, the very concept of diversity. Um. I, I don't I, I don't understand it. No. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, it's racism, Bob. And I said, well, no, maybe it is, but I don't understand it. I thought I understood racism. I thought I understood bigotry. I, I don't understand the the general blowback against the very concept of diversity uh, among an otherwise, you know, kind of coat and tie type crowd here in the 21st century. I mean, what's your problem? Seriously, you know, what 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 is their problem? Um, and that's that's what I think. What uh, even at, in, our, in our last days, when we have maybe three dozen students left, and we're basically um, teaching in a cave, and I, don't, I'm, I may be trying to teach history when it's no longer even a major or whatever. Um, one of the roles of the school is going to be asking part of portions of the United States, "What is your problem with what we're trying to do?" Why, why have you been trying to stop us? Why do you persecute us? Because, you know, why do you, why, why do you, are you threatened by education? Now, I don't run into this here. I don't, I've yet to run into that sort of attitude here in Glenville. But in the, the near, the more than 10 years that I've, I'm just saying in my, my 20 some years of teaching, I've run into it like crazy. Yeah. It's, it's people get scared and people don't like different and people don't like change. And I get it because I cut. Look, I I left when I, I was about I left when I was about twenty years old. I went in the military. I've been around the world a couple of times. I come home, people look at me like I'm different, even though I'm from there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a thing. I go to Walmart, people, because my accent's gotten soft too. Because you know, I've been gone too long. But after about the third day, the hills and hollers and yonders come back real fast. Mm -hmm. But I'll go to Walmart, and people they'll they'll look at me because they're not sure who I am. It's it's a cultural thing, but it's also a little bit of intellectual laziness. But I think a lot of it is just a lack of perspective. And that's something I try to take up in my writing and other things, because I've got to be outside of it and I'm proud to come from there. And I work back in there and do things now. And I'm like, look, there's this big world out here that will really, really like us. You just got to let them like us and yeah. try to approach it that way. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're talking with some pretty broad strokes here, but that's they, that's very much true. Well, I mean, you're an educator. You got to educate to the lowest level. And culturally, there's just some folks that are at the lowest level of understanding there's this real big world out there. 
that will love this place as much as we love it if you just give them a chance to. But there's a couple of things you got to stop doing because they're non-starters for some other folks. It's just that simple. I mean, it's a broad brush thing, but it's also we're talking about tourism dollars. We're talking about kids into our colleges. We're talking about careers. People want to come in, set up businesses. That's stuff that these folks consider when they go to spend their discretionary income. Mm hmm. Anyway, Bob Hutton, finishing up on an education question, because that's what we're supposed to be talking about. And we yeah. got off on that. Um, what's something, because you're an academic, as just the audience and me, when we're watching the headlines and, edu you know, people are going to debate the student loan stuff and all that. What are you looking for in news headlines in higher education over the next year or so? It's an election year, so people are going to be talking about it, things like that. What's something that piques your interest? What are you keeping an eye out for? Is it schools in trouble? Is it the enrollment? Everybody talks about enrollment. Is it funding? What are you watching for in the headlines? Um, I'm, I'm not sure what I'll be looking for in the next year. Well, in the next five years, I am. I do have a couple grim predictions. Um, some not so grim, but um, our our private four-year institutions are in real trouble. Uh, look at the ones that have gone under just in the just since I've been in West Virginia. We've had two. One of them just this past week. Um, Aldous Aldous Brodus, is that how you pronounce it? Aldous and Broadus is how I said it, but those Broadus. Philippine people do it different, I think. Okay, well, if, if that's Aldous Broadus. That's, that almost rhymes as well, anyway. <laughs> and, of course, um, uh, Ohio Valley. Yeah. Which, uh, we lost, uh, I believe, in the, the fall, right after the fall semester of 2021. Um, both of them, I'm assuming, to be victims of COVID for the most part. Um that's that's a trend that began before COVID. I remember a handful of denominational schools down in Tennessee uh, going under uh, Hiawassee, which was a Methodist school. Um, the availability of affordable education via community colleges, where you can get your associate's degree and then hop in and get to the next two years at a university, um, that's going to make things really hard for our four-year denominational schools. So I wish them well. They're who we play ball with in the Mountain East Conference. We need them for, for competition, if nothing else. But um, I'm really concerned about a lot of these schools. Um, now, I've seen a handful of them try to build themselves up into universities at, you know, after being a college for 150 years taking on new roles a lot of the time in uh, medical uh, in the medical realm, sometimes by adding on a business school, you know, things similar to what we're doing right here at Glenville. Um, and sometimes that works for them, sometimes not so much. Um, in the next four or five years, I see um, online education becoming way more prevalent. Uh, you were just saying how we have a handful of students, the, the age of my second oldest nephew, who've barely even experienced terrestrial schools, um, who are kind of used to online education. And a lot of them are going to sort of expect it to come 10 years from now. And uh, that's definitely on the horizon. How the politicians are going to react to that, I'm not so sure. Probably probably uh, by throwing austerity at us at like usual. Um, and there's, I mean, and of course in, in the, you, you talked about the, we were talking earlier about the, the upcoming election next year. Um, the, the general politicization of education, 
you know, when I was growing up, I hated school when I was in fourth grade, but you never would have heard a, a politician of any political stripe talking smack about education. They, they might have argued over the finer points of, well, we need to remove the asbestos of this one school or what have you. <laughs> but you never would have seen anybody go after education as a, you know, as a concept, like a Rottweiler. And that's right. That's very much what we have going on right now. Um, <clears throat> and um, I think uh, the, the, the the argument, just the existential question of education is going to become a more and more politicized topic. And uh, as, as much as you, as I, you and I may be sort of dreading the, the election cycle of 2024, I think we're probably going to be hearing a lot about education for that reason. So there's, I'm anticipating a lot and I'm anticipating a lot of headaches. I'm stocking up on my aspirin, but, um, it's, uh, it's still the best job in the world. Yeah. My, uh, my father who taught, um, Braxton County high school, they were the original staff of the school. Um, he said, where else are you going to work nine months out of the year, get weekends and summers off, make a good living and you can live in West Virginia. And that's how he always put it and do something that really, really matters. And, yeah. Oh, I mean, he, low key having summers off is worth 10,000 bucks. <laughs> no <laughs> argument. No argument at all. Bob Hutton, thrilled to have you. We'll definitely have you back. We could talk about this stuff all day. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you got going on, how they can follow you till we get you back on herd tell probably after the semester. Cause you get it right busy here in about three or four weeks. Yeah, especially next week. But um, you can always follow me on Twitter or whatever it's called now uh, at uh, <laughs> ampersand. Here comes Dr. Bob. Um, I have some other outlets for, for social media, but I think that's the one where I'm most active. And I think Andrew can attest to that. Um, it's the most fun one, at least. I'm also I'm, I'm working on a book on the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. That's that's more of a southern West Virginia uh subject but uh, it's something i've been working on for quite some time and uh, it's it's so with uh, our various debates about law enforcement these days i think uh, potentially a very important topic um i um then that, that's basically all i have to plug at the moment yeah um, uh, of course the baldwin felt shot said hatfield last week was the uh, anniversary just had it here a couple days ago as we're sitting right. on recording this uh I we, I was watching a a movie with my family and they were and there was a very it was a gilded age type film and he's like go get go get the go get the detectives and I just recall it and they're like well I was like oh no that's a bad word where I come from and I had to tell them the whole Baldwin Feltz thing and Drew Mountain had to walk them through the whole thing so we'll be looking we'll definitely have you on to talk about that those come uh, Bob Hutton thank you so much Doctor Bob appreciate your time sir thanks for having me I'll see you yes sir. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 
Ah, and that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Herd Tell. We also have Herd Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive. So we're going to have some specials, some best of things like that. And also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. We got over 600 episodes of Herd Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click herdtell.substack.com we sure appreciate it and follow us on social media herdtell show on the twitter four for the fires my personal twitter handle no we're not going to call it x but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs we're checking out we sure would appreciate it so wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well we hope you are well fed we'll talk to you real soon for the next herdtell All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.